The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, everyone. You're listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm very honored to have His Grace Budara Prabhu here on with me. Thank you, Prabhu, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, I've watched your program many times, and your intro shows a long list of illustrious Vaishnavas that have appeared before me. So uh, I'm coming to pick up some of their foot dust. <laughs> Thank you so much. So Budar Prabhu is based in the UK. He's originally from America. Uh, and he has a wonderful uh, company as well as um, consultation, as well as uh, a um, philosophy. But you could say it's like a you know, the, the Vedic and the old uh, traditional philosophy put into a really amazing and interesting way. Uh, it's called uh, the Dharma Diamonds, but we'll get into that later. But first of all, I'd like to ask Prabhu, uh, how did you come into, like, where were you raised and uh, how did you get into Krishna consciousness? Well, it's a long story. I'm going to try to condense it into, you know, a few uh, highlights. Uh, sure. Probably could go into a halfway decent uh, semi-psychedelic book. Um, <laughs> I, I was a product of the 60s. I was born in 54. Uh, grew up in a business family in uh, the Berkshires in uh, western part of Massachusetts. Um, yeah, uh, like any young kid, uh, I was full of discontents. Um, kind of the family I came from uh, had its... Uh, various dysfunctions, which told me that money and privilege wasn't really what life is all about if you want to be happy. Uh, so I began a search. And of course, the search begins with hanging out with my friends and reading books and, you know, looking at things like um, uh, Richard Alpert's uh, or Ram Dass's Be Here Now. And um, uh, one day uh, we uh, I took a trip with uh, my high school, uh, I was still in the very early years of my high school, and we went to Boston and uh, went to the Boston Common. And uh, when I when I went to the Boston Common, I had a vision that was just completely blew my mind. Um, and I remember, I remember some of the people that were still there, I believe it was Jai Dwayta Maharaj was there. Uh, uh, Jadarani was there. Uh, uh, and, and others, um, and they were just dancing on the street in the Boston Common, and uh, I mean, it was really otherworldly. I, I was so impacted by it. I, you know, the mantra itself. I had already been chanting somehow, thanks to some of my friends who had discovered something of Krishna consciousness, and we began to share books and um, sometimes do hallucinogenics and try to find Krishna in the woods. Uh, and things like that. But, you know, when I saw the devotees, it really touched me. Uh, so the first thing I did was I went up to them and I uh, I bought a bunch of books. And I bought I bought a stack of Back to Godhead magazines and I took them back with me to uh, my uh, high school and I started distributing them to all my friends. Um, and I guess that became <laughs> that was like the first devotional service of any type that I did. Um, later on, not long after that, I went away to college uh, in Boston to uh, uh, 
study art, fine arts, and um, still rather unhappy with the way things were going. Uh, Vietnam War was going on at the time. Uh, eventually, I would, uh, you know, almost be get, almost be drafted. Uh, I missed it by a month. Um, so looking, searching, a friend of mine said that he uh, knew where the Hare Krishna temple was. I said, can you bring me there? I became very keen to go and have the experience. Uh, he brought me to the temple, uh, to the Sunday love feast, where I was plied with copious amounts of halava and sweet rice and burfi and God knows what. I, you know, Later on, I became a diabetic, so that might have been oh <laughs> one of the contributing factors. But um, we, I talked with a devotee in uh, Tulsi Maharani's room, which was full of grow lights, and it had this really otherworldly experience and the smell of the incense and the deities, Radhagopi Balava, who were installed by Srila Prabhupada not long before I went there. And I had read the Bhagavad Gita by that time. Um, and in reading it and going to the temple, I said, okay, this is it. This is the truth. This is this is where it's at. This is what life is really all about. So I went back, told the uh, <clears throat> um, the administrator at my college that I was quitting. And I called my sister and I told her, tell mom and dad, I'm going to become a monk, a Hare Krishna monk, poor girl. And, uh, and I moved into the temple. So that was the Sunday and I was in the temple shaved up, washing pots on the Wednesday evening. So that's how it, that's how it began. Wow. Yeah. And um, I always ask this of, of devotees who kind of survived the post Prabhupada the time you know how was that for you I mean you're still you know a devotee and you're still around so what was that like you know I mean I mean what did you actually no I'm skipping ahead of too much what sure. did you do after okay there was the pot washing and there was the living in the temple but did you stay there long term or what happened after that uh, you might have heard of something called book distribution um, oh. <laughs> and, and you know and we did all kind of forms of that we went out on the street in the morning and <clears throat> uh, you know uh, chanted Harinam we did Harinam and the van would pick us up uh, full of pots of hot prashadam uh, we would eat up to our gullet, and um, then we would be dropped off for doing door-to-door -door sankirtan in the uh, neighborhoods of Boston in the freezing cold. Uh -huh. um, and that began my career, uh, my off-and-on career as a, as a book distributor, uh, as in living in the temple, which I stayed in until Srila Prabhupada uh, left this, uh, uh, you know, this material world. Um, you know, I traveled around, I was on the Radhadamadar party, oh, wow. um, was doing Sankirtan leadership in, uh, in uh, New York city. I was part of the Sankirtan leadership team in Los Angeles and New Dwarka. Uh, so I got around and, you know, I saw America and there's probably at least at that point in time. I don't know that there was a state that I didn't visit except for maybe Hawaii and Alaska, uh, but we more or less lived out of the van. That was it, you know. And then, um, you know, Prabhupada left, and uh, yeah, that was a that was a big change in my life. 
Yeah. How was needless to say? Yeah. What was the? I mean, you know, immediately after there was like quite confusion, and then you know, years after a lot of different changes, people yeah. getting yeah. into the um, you know leadership, but then not being able to keep their vows or keep the you know the faith and things like that. What was that like for you? Uh, well, you know, first of all, um, you know, full disclosure, uh, I'm not a born saintly person, although I've always been interested in God and spirituality from a very young age. Right. I have my material inclinations. And uh, um, by the time Prabhupada had left, um, I had, you could say that I was like a middle manager of some type in the structure of the movement. Um, and I had had some exposure to some of the dynamics that were kind of going on prior to that. Um, and instinctively, uh, when Prabhupada left, which is such a grief stricken moment for all of us. I mean, I remember what a sorrowful day it was in, in, in New York. Um, we were told we couldn't go to India to be with Prabhupada, even though Prabhupada told us we could go to India. Um, but, you know, we had to stay back and, and do the dutiful thing and, 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 and keep the movement going, yeah. which 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 on the whole, I think I did. And many, many other de other devotees did. You know, we kind of took it really seriously when I when I became a devotee. Um, I did so with a sense of I'm becoming a monk. I'm doing this for life. I'm you know, I'm, I'm this is what I'm this is really what I'm going to do. I'm joining a holy order. So that means I'm going to do what I'm told, and and the, that that is the way to uh, dismantle my ego. Um, but um, having a sense of almost a sense of the direction of travel for the movement after Prabhupada's departure. Um, luckily, uh, somebody suggested to me that well, you know, you're probably not brahmachari material, really, uh, and you should get married. And I said, well, okay, if I'm going to get married, um, then I'm going to get a job because I don't want to live on the back of all the hardworking Sankirtan devotees. That's not what married life is all about. Although, you know, I mean, I don't know that anybody really knew what married life was as a young devotee back then. Right. <laughs> um, you know, um, so, uh, you know, I called my family, said, you know, what do you think I should do? And they said, well, get a job, of course. And, uh, in no time at all, I was working on Wall Street, being trained to sell mainframe computers to banks and brokerage firms. Wow. What year was that? No, that was, well, Sheila Prabhupada left in 77, 77 right? Yeah. yeah. So that would have been 78. Wow. Computers yeah. at that time probably were like the size of like a room or something. Right? Uh, a hard disk, which was uh, the pride and glory of this particular company that I worked for, yeah. um, a 10 megabyte hard disk um, sat in something about the size of a small refrigerator. And, and the disk itself was this big. And you it was encased in a large plastic kind of container, which you put into the box and you turned it almost like you're kind of, you know, bat, batting a hatch on a, on a, on a, on a submarine. Yeah. So it was, it was, a, it was a really different reality. 10 megabytes. That's it. 
10 megabytes that was it wow. that was it you know Wow, so, so how was that doing, you know, you know, selling that in Wall, Wall Street? That's uh, well, funny. you know, it's a, it's, it's a culture shock. Um, yeah. I mean, a, a serious culture shock. Um, you know, I mean, I had lived in the temple by then, um, maybe like going on six years. Wow. Uh, so those were the formative years of my life, so to speak. And of course, looking back on it, I wouldn't change it for anything um but you know also the experience on wall street was a big shocker because you're hanging out with people who are deeply immersed in making money enjoying material life riding in limousines uh and all the stuff that goes with that which i will save your uh audience the details of um right. but you know it, it it has its own culture uh it didn't take too long before i realized that it wasn't for me um, and, uh, what I then did was, uh, decided to get back to my spirituality and my art. I mean, I had always kept Krishna with me, sure. Prabhupada with me all the way along, uh, in my journey. Uh, not that during the rough times, uh, in my exposure to that culture that I was able to maintain a great sadhana, um, uh, but I never forgot them and uh, I always felt that they were guiding me in some way. Um, so, you know, I got back to my art and uh, that began another whole journey um, where I, I did fairly well with that and eventually traveled to Europe and reconnected what, in a more official of, way with the devotees. What kind of art are we talking about? Uh, lithography, printmaking, uh, oh, painting, no. graphic uh drawings um yeah okay. like that. yeah all right and so you connected back with the devotees in europe where where was that in europe uh i arrived uh let me let me just remember in holland okay so uh hooked up with the devotees there um and went to belgium uh spent some time in france with uh, bhagavan das's um family there uh, I started tutoring some of the kids who were in the Gurukula there. And so that was kind of my re-entry in a way to uh, uh, back into um, the more organized movement. I had always kind of kept in touch, uh -huh. but never really kind of been, was deeply involved. Right. And yeah. then and then you, I assume that you were going different places, traveling and teaching and doing your art for the next number of years? Um, yeah, I think what happened, let me see, let me just recollect what happened. Um, you know, had a relationship, had a daughter, um, got into uh, selling art in Amsterdam, uh, and then eventually got into other things, got back into computers, uh, doing some marketing. Um, and all the way along, as a background to this, of course, is my interest in Vedic astrology, which I had continued to study over the years. I had first met it in India when I was there, and uh, that became a big theme for me. And I had a dream of Prabhupada um, once uh, where it was really uh, very real and uh, one of these like lucid dreams where, you know, they say when your spiritual master appears to you in a dream, it's really your spiritual master. And um, I always had a rather um, 
real strong sense of awe and reverence for Srila Prabhupada. Um, and so the dream was out of, char out of character because we were sitting in a summer house and uh, we were sitting side by side each other like this. And he was here and I was here and our elbows were touching. And he turned to me and he looked at me and he said, um, what do you think I should do uh, to redeem my good name in the eye of the public? And I woke up. Now, that's maybe that's my subconscious doing its thing, but I really felt it was like a, clearly a message from Prabhupada. And what I took from the dream was a message that um, we needed to demonstrate giving something back to society. So, you know, at that time, there was a lot of kind of various kinds of activities going on to what you could call economic generation activities. Um, mm -hmm. We called it Sankirtan, you know, but basically it was, you know, selling different products. And and I, th I had a sense that the, the public was tiring of that. Mm. You know, um, there was a kind of a fatigue from that. And, and we became, I think, culturally uh, mocked in some ways because of that. And I felt like I think we, we drifted a little way away from what really the core message of the movement was all about and what Prabhupada really what Prabhupada really stands for. So well, from that dream, I said, well, okay, I, I need to give something back. And I thought, okay, well, maybe that's me counseling people and helping people spiritually and astrologically. And that's uh, that I started really doing in earnest uh, in the very early 80s, 83, 84, 85, mm -hmm. something like that. And I've been doing that ever since. That's, oh, that's, that's like your main. Um, that's my that's that's my profession, if you want to call it that. It's mm -hmm. my dharma. It's my duty in life. Um, I've counseled many, many thousands of people over the years. Um, I enjoy the work. Um, I enjoy helping people a great deal. I find people fascinating. Every astrological chart I look at is a kind of a. Um, it's almost like opening a novel mm. and read, you know, well, look at this. This is interesting. Right, right. This configuration of humanity in front of me. Um, and I really get a kick out of it because I really feel that it's helped me live up to Prabhupada's request to me in the dream, which is to give something back right. and to demonstrate um, what I think has been a big theme in my life all the way along, which is to kind of show from a practical point of view how Krishna consciousness can really benefit people's lives. So we have the, you know, we have the philosophy, we have the religious side of it. Uh, we have the, the practice of bhakti and, you know, the aspiration that we can develop pure love of Krishna, you know, that we can someday in some life become a, a true uh, Sudha Bhakta, right. um, you know, but um that doesn't always, unless somebody's got the Sukriti for that, that doesn't always really translate very well into a Western dynamic. You know, if you say to people, well, you know, the Supreme Divine Lord is a little blue sapphire colored cowherd boy playing the flute, frolicking with his, you know, cowherd maidens in Brudge. I find that always, I've always found that attractive, but maybe other people don't. So, 
you know, I, I always have been interested to kind of create on ramps for people mm. to kind of come into um, Krishna consciousness where I feel like I'm doing kind of cultural translation work, um, making esoteric and, you know, otherwise inaccessible ideas easily understandable and accessible, accessible to people. That's so difficult, actually. When, it's, it's difficult. It is. Can you give an example? I'd love to hear an example of what you would, of how, of, of you doing that. Um, I know the Dharma Diamond is, is that's kind of we'll, where we're going. We'll, we'll come but, on to that, but I have other yeah. examples. Yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I mean, you know, um, and there are many good astrologers out there now um, who've studied Vedic astrology, some of them devotees who I have great respect for. Um, when I got into it, um, I think Shamasundar Prabhu might have been the only one that I knew of who was doing it at the time. Um, and I have immense respect for him. He's, he's, he's a proper Brahmin. Um, I think that anybody who knows the science or the art of Vedic astrology will tell you that um, there's a real wow moment when looking at the chart, having just met a person, you can start telling them a great deal about who they are, what their background is. I think you've had Drew Lawrence on uh, on here, Duryodhan uh, uh, Guru, I think. I know him really well. Um, yeah. In a sense, I've consulted with him a lot, but I haven't had him on. I'm, I should do that. Oh, I, okay. He, I was on, he was on Wisdom of the Sages, I believe, a few times. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm mixing up the podcast. Okay. okay, that's a good podcast to be mixed up with. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you, you have this experience, um, you know, and a lot of times, most of the time when I'm doing a chart for somebody, they come in to see me or I'm seeing them on Zoom and um, I do a chart of the moment. And from the chart of the moment, I then tell them what they came to see me for. Mm. Right. So, okay, we want to talk about this, this, this and this. And I say, is that right? And they almost invariably go, yes, uh, that is really exactly what I want to talk about. They say, okay, let's go and look at the chart. Let's see what the chart tells us. And the chart is a pathway into understanding the deep being and psychology of a person. Um, it tells us a lot about their potential, uh, a lot about their character, how the modes of nature affect them. Of course, he talks about karma, of course. Uh, but my approach to it is um, really kind of seeing how I can help people practically manage their existence, if you will, so that they can move toward a spiritual awakening of some type. Mm. And, and, you know, that, that happens in different ways for different people by degrees, um, but over the years, of course, I've been able to introduce a lot of people to the practice of Krishna consciousness through the use of astrology. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, uh, because you kind of become sort of a a guide, and they're like very open to hear from you. It's not that you know, they're, they're coming for kind of an astrological uh, consultation, and that be you become a teacher for them in some way, or even a guru in a sort of way because they're just very open to hear whatever you have to say in when it comes to astrology and 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 adding spiritual life to 
to that will probably, you know, most probably help them. So that's a, that's a really interesting way to kind of on-ramp people. I think it is. I mean, I, I'm always careful to tell people don't think I'm a guru, although I am, I am in a colloquial sense, perhaps in, in the sense that I'm, a teacher of some type and I'm a guide and, and I'm helping people practically. Um, and that's, um, that's the great thing about it. Um, but I have a really, a really strong conviction that super soul is guiding the journey of all living entities mm-hmm. and that I'm probably just a signpost on their journey towards something more. Right. Right. Now that, Sometimes people come and see me once, but, you know, I've had clients now that I've worked with for 30 years who I talk with multiple times in a year and some I talk with once a, once a week. So, you know, it, it varies and some of them have become devotees and some of them haven't, but I, I, I always get a chance to talk about Krishna because, you know, I, um, I guess you could say I plunder the, treasures of the Bhagavad Gita a lot and the Shastras. And I bring examples in, in terms of trying to give them an understanding of what I'm talking about as it pertains to them and their life. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. There's always a chance to bring Krishna into the picture. It's really interesting. So tell us about how you got into the idea of the uh, Dharma diamond. Uh, first of all, what it is, yep. and then we can get the background of how you came to that. Yeah, um, well, the, the Dharma Diamond, to put it in a nutshell, in, in a simple, simple way, is that um, it's a cultural translation of the principle of Dharma as we find in our Vedic and Vaishnava Shastras. Okay. Um, we know from the Shastras that, particularly the Bhagavad Purana, um, um uh, you know when uh maharaj kali is assaulting the legs of the bull of dharma okay we know how sacred the bull is to indian culture um and so we have the iconography of dharma and we understand from the shastras that dharma is a way of living it's the righteous way of living there's many different types of dharma according to your status in society and what you do, what your occupation is and all that. So there's a Kshatriya Dharma. So there's a Dharma for being a soldier. There's a Dharma for being a parent. You know, there's, there's lots of different Dharmas, but, um, but what is it, you know, really, you know, um, and we know from our basic uh, philosophical teachings that, you know, it's four principles that we um, that we honor in our religious practice: um, satya, ahimsa, saucha, and tapasya. Can and, I post the uh, the graphic? Yeah, why not? Yeah, I mean, um, and you know what you have at the, in the graphic here is um, satya at the top, which uh, of course comes from the Sanskrit word sat. The root word is sat, which means truth, that which exists, uh, that which has um, uh, substantial value. Um, The way that uh, 
we talk about it, um, of course, um, is that it's it's a lot deeper than that. Let me let me maybe just take a step back and just try to give you the picture of the whole model because you asked me a simple question. I'm maybe complicating it for uh, your viewers. Um, Dharma is a model of living that helps create harmony uh, and sustainability uh, in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a state uh, characterized by balance, well-being, uh, peace, compassion, and noble thought. And uh, according to Bhishma Dave in the Mahabharata, it leads to prosperity and sustainability and self-satisfaction. So in other words, he says, I believe it's in the Shanti Parva, that one who protects Dharma will be protected by Dharma. So Dharma is a is a principle that stabilizes and nurtures uh, and protects. It, it fosters growth, um, transformation, and guaranteed progress to discover our higher mind and achieve an evolved state of consciousness. So that's that's a big statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs unpacking, but you can think of Dharma as your go-to compass for knowing whether your life is on track or not. Wow. So you can use this model of thinking to check in with yourself or to look at your business or to look at your relationships or whatever and ask yourself, why am I failing or why am I successful? And I know that it works because we've applied it um, over the last many years in workshop settings, um, in one-to-one consultations with people, uh, and also uh, bringing it into businesses, some big and some small. And when we bring it into business, we we actually take uh, the business people through a, a kind of a checklist, an assessment, or an inventory of how well they're doing in any of these four principles. So again, you could think of them uh, simply as a compass that can guide you in the journey of your life. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, so what are the cardinal directions of the compass? Uh, truth, uh, which we translate from sat, satya, which means truth, that which has value and which is substantial and which is lasting. Okay, ahimsa, which of course, we know the root word of, of ahimsa is himsa, which means violence. Ahimsa is a prohibition against violence, but we cult- loosely culturally translate it as respect. Um, because, you know, if you respect someone, you can't do violence to them. Right. So it's not a literal translation, but it's uh, it's pointing in the direction of what we're really supposed to be understanding from this principle. Uh, and then there's purity, uh, which is socha. And purity are the standards and the criteria and the values that guide your life. So when you need to make optimal choices in your life, what principles or ideas are going to guide you to make those really great choices? And then, of course, you know, you have effort, which is tapasya, which comes from the root word tapa, which means fire. And therefore, we translate it as effort. Uh, And so effort means what is the passion that you bring to your life? You know, when we think of tapasya as devotees, we think 
I'm going to do a lot of hard work and I'm going to do, you know, and sometimes we get lost in it. We think, okay, I become more of a tapasvin, maybe then I become a bhakta, right? And if you think about the Dharma model as a whole, what we're really aiming at is understanding who we are and what our essential purpose is. What are we dedicated to in life? What is... Uh, what is what brings meaning to who we are and what we do um, in terms of respect? Who do we do it for? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, am I doing it for my family, for others, of course, for myself? How do I do it? It relates to the values that are symbolized by purity and effort symbolizes the passion or the commitment or the discipline that I bring to what I'm doing. So, you know, hopefully this is coming across in a simple way. There's lots of ways of explaining it. But if if you have this model in your head, this mental model in your head, you can go and look at anything in your life and understand why it's working or why it's not working. I'm really interested in that. Can we do like an exercise? Because you said it's like a compass to see if your whatever what it is your life, your business is on track or not. Yeah. So how does one? Do that? I, I don't want to skip ahead too much. If if you have something else, we can do that after. But I, I, that's something I'd like to flag there. I like. Well, to- well, let's let let's let's deal with it as it comes. We're in a okay. flow. You know, sure. I, I always I love I love to be in conversation more than be too didactic and just be teaching stuff. You know. Right. Right. Um, I'll give you one, uh, maybe a couple examples, but the first one that comes to mind is, um, a bank that we consulted, um, and we did an inventory with them over a three day period, assessing the nature of their organization. Interesting. Okay. So we asked them to examine their truth. And of course, you know, (laughs) a guy, a CEO in another company said, well, you know, I always tell the truth and, and we're not really just talking about telling the truth and being honest. We're actually asking people to reflect deeply on their purpose. Okay. You know, I mean, as, and as devotees, we do that, you know, what am I doing here in the material world? How did I get here? How do I make the best use of this bad bargain? As Prabhupada said, um, so, you know, with this bank, we walk them through a process of assessing and defining what kind of company they really wanted to be. And it was very, very clear to them that, you know, they are, they want to achieve excellence. They want to be a leader in their industry. They want to be distinguished as being honest, uh, financiers with a lot of integrity. So that was their truth. Um, oh, they say they actually that was one of their that was one of their expressed aims in being in business. There are some nice business people out there, by the way. <laughs> you know, I know. I was just gonna say because when, <laughs> when most businesses is like okay, the the prime the the thing that they want the most is just to make the most money in the shortest period of time, no matter what you know happens. But from what you're saying, it seems like there's people who are okay. We want to run this company with integrity, honesty, and that's our one of our main goals. Wow, that's. I think I, you know if you really look at the business literature, 
and you look at what's emerging in the culture, um, perhaps it's coming a little bit too, a little too little and too late, but there is a big movement of very inspired business people out there that are recognizing that you can be nice and be in business, right. you know, and that you don't have to break things in order to make money. Right. You know, you can you can do it in a harmonious way. And in a way, that's how we present the Dharma diamond. So the first thing you do, you could say that for a business, truth can be defined as your mission statement. Right. You know, what's your purpose? And then we we looked at their their quality control. And we asked them, well, what are your standards? And they were very, very precise in everything that they did. They they were very compliant with all the rules. They were very expert in their execution. Um, there was no wastage in what they were doing and so on and so on. So their purity was really very well developed. Um, and of course, as bankers, they were, um, they were workaholics, right? So, you know, you're talking about 12, 16 hour days, right? right? 24 seven, really, in a way. Um, but then when we looked at their respect, we found some weaknesses. And the weaknesses were that they didn't really enjoy explaining to their clients what they did. They just wanted their clients to accept what they did without question. And when we dug deeper into the conversation, what came out of it was that um this was causing them problems uh and in some cases litigation that actually was costing them a lot of money every year so we said well you know why don't you pay attention to your respect principle instead of you know othering your client and just seeing him as a, a as a kind of a income asset perhaps Maybe you need to see that I need to develop a deeper relationship with my client, develop a greater kind of communication, actually seek to educate my client that this is there is this is what we do. This is how we do it. And you can create greater rapport. And they did that. And uh, over a period of about three or four years, um, their problems with litigation went away. And they were able to distinguish themselves in the market and begin to hire some of the best people in the in the industry. So that's that's one example. And there are other business examples that I could give. Um, um, you could apply it in a, in a marriage relationship. You know, um, am I too self centered in my relationship with my wife? You know, uh, is it all about me? Am I respectful to her? Am I considerate of her needs? Um, and vice versa, is she considerate of my needs? Um, do I have good standards that, you know, guide me in my relationship with her? And do I do the thing? Do I discipline myself to do the things that are oftentimes not what I want to do, but I do them out of love? You know, love, love takes hard work, right? Mm -hmm. So these are just a couple of very, very simple examples. I mean, does that help? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I want to kind of unpack the like the marriage example that you said. So in looking at the truth, effort, respect, and purity, would it be that that the person just goes to each one and says, okay, where am I? How how much of the truth am I uh practicing or how much effort am I putting? Is it just like, is it kind of very linear in that way? Or how does that, or, or, or is it something that you help that person uh, unpack by knowing them better or something? I guess that's where. Yeah, I think, I think, okay. So that's a really good question because if, if you put the, uh, can you put the, yeah, sure. the graphic back on and I'll, Definitely. and I'll show you something real, real quick about how it works. If you see there's, there are two arrows, there are two lines that one connects truth with respect. Um, and we define that, those two principles um, as the, the domain of being. So that's our existential reality. I exist and you exist. Without you, I have no way to express myself or without others would be a better way to say it. Without others, how do, how do I adequately express myself? As the old saying goes, no man is an island. So truth mirrors respect, and it forms the domain of, of being. And purity and effort form the domain of action. So uh, you, can, you can drop the graph now, and I'll just go on to um, explain it uh, in a little bit more detail. Um, one of the classic mistakes I think that people make in relationships is that they're not truly who they are. And they enter into relationships, maybe not knowing that. And the idea of going into a relationship is a place where they discover who they really are. Mm -hmm. So I think it's useful in a relationship to always check in with yourself and go, well, how do I feel? You know, am I being honest with myself? Am I being really honest with the person that I love? Or do, am I holding things back on the idea that I can't really be honest about what I'm feeling? That's a recipe for eventual problems. Right. The same goes for the other partner. And that is the respect principle, which is probably best embodied in the idea of careful listening. Right. So I need to. Like you could say the truth principle for me is I need to be seen, but in the respect principle is I need to see other people for who they are. And we hear from the Vedas uh, that, you know, everybody wants to see God, but the Vedas tell us the only way you can really see God is to hear about God. Mm -hmm. Okay. Guess what? It's the same for everybody. You can look at somebody and you can say, oh, she's beautiful. Okay, I'm attracted to her. But if you don't hear from her what kind of person she is and what's going on inside of her, you might find out that that's really not the person for you. Right? So hearing and listening and reflecting back to each other is actually a really important dynamic for um, good relationships. Um, if you look at the history of the movement, um, we can say that post Prabhupada's, and maybe there were hints of this early on, um, post Prabhupada's departure, um, we kind of lost our dharmic way a little bit. 
Yeah. So we didn't we didn't really pay enough attention to our relationships. We didn't pay enough attention to our mutual respect. If we had cared for each other, right, and, and invested more energy in supporting each other, uh, the movement would have thrived, perhaps, at least in my mind, a lot more. Maybe the classic example of that is, you know, how how did we treat women? You know, did, did we actually have respect for women? Do we understand that women are the are the foundation of society, actually? Yeah. You know, you know, you, you're born in an Indian family so that you know that, you know, the mother is the pinnacle of everything. Right. You know, it's yeah. like she's the basis for the family. So, you know, I think we lost our way on that. We compromised in terms of our standards. We, you know, we went out and, and, and we did some misrepresentation to the public. That hurt us. We weren't really true to what Prophet's mission entirely was all about. Some of us became selfish along the way. And, you know, and of course, we lack the necessary discipline to really tidy us, tidy our act up in that way. So I'm just, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody because, you know, we're all young and we made mistakes and all that. Um, sure. But I'm giving the example that maybe your listeners would relate to who were there and who did experience it. They'll be able to say, well, OK, yeah, I really get that. If we had had the Dharma Diamond as an idea to guide us, maybe we would have been on track. One very leading um, uh, devotee who has many followers in the world, when I presented this to him, he said, uh, I wish that I had known this a long time ago. Wow. He said, because I would have made a lot less mistakes and I think I would have been able to do a lot more for, for Prabhupada. When you said um, the arrow represent uh, the arrow to truth and respect are connected, uh, purity and effort also has an arrow going yep. by. Yeah. Can so you explain that? Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, truth is uh, who am I, let's say, in a simple nutshell, and respect is who am I for, right? So what are my relationships, right? So that's my existential being. That, that's the nature of my existence. Um, purity and effort form the dimension of action. And um, you could think of purity as representing progress. And you could think of effort as representing results. Mm. Okay. So purity represents progress because it's only by a process of refinement that we make progress and that's what the purity principle is it the purity principle is the elimination of what doesn't belong so if i look at my behavior what doesn't really belong in me being the very best i can be if i look at my relationships what doesn't really belong in the way that i'm dealing with other people which is actually affecting the smooth harmonious relationship that i want to have with others so purity represents um, uh, progress. It's the standards that guide us, the values that guide us to get better and better and better at what we do. 
and of course that's an endless thing and which i will could talk about but i won't complicate the conversation i will talk about it another time maybe sure um purity is the air that fuels the fire of effort so it's the oxygen that gives us the um the passion if i really know what i want if i really have standards and values that are guiding me i can get really passionate about what i want to achieve i can work really hard at it and it's through that effort i don't even i shouldn't even say working hard i want to say having fun playing doing something that i enjoy right it's it's exciting it brings it brings me vitality right so i mean i remember going out on sankirtan it's kind of like getting up in the morning when you get up in the morning even now i have a hard time getting up in the morning but once i get up in the morning and i'm going and going out on sankirtan there's always a little trepidation well what's it going to be like but once i'm going out and i'm connecting with people i'm passionate i'm experiencing i'm vitalized i'm I'm inspired by what I do. I'm connecting with other people. So the domain of, of action is about getting better who we are and what we do in our relationships, having the standards that guide us. And then only after that do we actually get to work. Mm -hmm. If we look at our culture, our culture celebrates the idea of hard work, right? Oh, I got to go to work. You know, let's get it done. Okay. But a lot of times, as Stephen Covey says, we end up putting our ladder up against the wrong wall. Right. So we're 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 working hard at something, but we in the end we find out, oh my God, I spent all that energy and it hasn't really gotten me the results that I want to get. Okay. Truth is the guiding principle to guide us in terms of what are we really aiming for? Right. Right. Respect is the quality of how we interact with our environment. And purity is actually being really clear. Having the standards that really may help us check in with our truth, help us check in with our relationships. Once we have those three lined up, then we can get to work. And then when you get to work, then you find out eventually you achieve something I call effortless effort. And that's, that's the Dharma diamond. The Dharma diamond is how to live in the world, how to be what probably called lazy intelligent. Right. Right. So if you know what the principles of the Dharma diamond are, you can, um, you can get to that place of lazy intelligent and it may be worth if it's, if it's okay to kind of backtrack and go, well, where does this come from? Because I know that that was a question that you asked. Are you, do you want to, can we go there? Or do you want to uh, carry on with this line? I, of had, a, I had a question um, we, that that's definitely important. Uh, I had a question regarding uh, exactly what you said, like putting a ladder at the wrong wall per, per se. So yeah. what if you have a certain occupation or certain, dharma you can say of of your of your current life and you look at this di dharma diamond and it's and it just it, it you 
are you kind of um, come to the conclusion that maybe you're in the wrong occupation or wrong relationship or wrong business? Yeah. Does that does that does the Dharma Diamond communicate that to someone that okay maybe this is all the whole thing is out of whack somehow? Well, I mean, I would say that the Dharma Diamond is a model of thinking that helps you make that assessment yourself. Right. Okay, so I don't necessarily go into companies and go, oh, geez, you're doing all the wrong thing. But I ask all the right questions that maybe get them to look at the things that they need to look at to draw that conclusion. Uh, my hypothesis is that if you follow, the, if you use the Dharma diamond, um, you will eventually avoid, help avoid uh, uh, nervous breakdowns and midlife crises. Mm. right because that's a huge that's a huge thing i was just talking to a friend the other day and he was saying oh, i've been working but just some days i get up i don't want to work and i think like okay i get a new job and then uh, maybe that will be better and then he gets a new job and then he just feels the same way after a while so what is the what's the how can the dharma diamond help someone like that he's not looking at his truth mm. he's looking he's outward looking He's thinking that, okay, I want to be happy, which is, of course, we all want to be happy. And I respect that. But he's thinking that, oh, well, if it's not this job, maybe it's another job. Right. Or maybe it's, if that's not that job, then it's going to be another job. Right. And that's almost kind of, um, I'm, of course, he won't go about finding a job in this way, but it's almost a, like a random selection process. Right. Oh, if I just look around for jobs, maybe I'll land the one that I want. I'll find, oh, that's a good fit for me. And of course, life works like that sometimes, right? But a more thoughtful way of approaching this um, is to say, well, who am I? What is my nature? How am I built? What are my strengths? What are my talents? What am I passionate about? If he's having a hard time getting out of bed, clearly he's not passionate about his work. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, I, I bet, you know, you're getting up pretty early in the morning to do this podcast. I bet if you're like me, you have a hard time waking up in the morning but you still like getting up in the morning because you really love doing what you're doing. Yeah. You're, I, yeah, yeah. You're, you're showing up every day and you're showing up every day and you're putting up with the inconvenience. You're putting up with the tapasya. You're making the effort to endure and to make the sacrifices you need to make because you love what you do because what you do is who you are. Mm. Right. For in my example, like this is this is something that is a extracurricular thing. Like I have my occupation, which I'm not crazy about, but it helps me maintain my family. It helps put food on the table, roof over our head, et cetera, et cetera. So my friend who I was speaking about, he's it's like it's not as emerge it's not much of an emergency for him as it is for me in the sense of like i'm supporting my family etc so what would you say to someone like me who i just do it because it's i'm kind of 
so forced into this occupation that pays well and I'm I do it for mostly for the money but I have something on the outside that that I'm passionate about how do those things relate with each other in 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 the context of the dharma diamond like it's not my I'm doing mostly my occupation that's my you know 9 to 5 thing is like mostly what I'm doing there this is like a very extra thing that I do you know from time to time sure so do you know kind of what I'm asking? I do, I do, I do. I'm just, I'm just collecting my thoughts. Sure. Um, I think it's important to be gentle in this discussion. Okay, so I never tell people to give up their day job. Right. Right. It's, it's too, too much, too quick. Um, but. Really, what the Dharma Diamond does is it gives us a way to check in with the re- with our reality, um, to evaluate how true we are living to who we really are. If you have a family and family responsibility, any any responsible man with a family knows that life is about sacrifice. Yeah. Life is about getting up and doing what you don't want to do because you have mouths to feed and you have children to educate and you have roof to keep over everybody's head. So, you know, we gladly make those sacrifices out of love. You know, we care about the people. We have respect for the people that we're working for. So having said that, If you were if you were going to engage with me in a process that might take a number of conversations, what we might do is look more closely at your thinking, which defines for you that this is the only thing you can do because you're doing it and because it's comfortable and because it's what's working for you now. Right. If you were to change your way of looking maybe at yourself or your circumstances or your place in the world, could you maybe find something that was more dynamic and appropriate to who you really are? That's a discovery thing. Mm -hmm. That's a bit of an adventure. And I don't, you know, the the Dharma diamond doesn't, the the Dharma diamond doesn't guarantee that you're going to get to, the Shangri-La of your dreams, right? But it, but it's a compass. You know, you're you're on the journey of your own life. <clears throat> and so you can check in with yourself and you can say, well, okay, well, maybe I should test my assumptions. You know, am I really completely happy with what I'm doing in my day job? Is there something more that I could be doing which is a little bit more closely aligned to who I really am. And if I do that, the theory is that, um, and there's plenty of modern psychology that supports this, um, the theory is that I will become as abundant, I will become as prosperous doing something that I really love as opposed to doing something which is convenient or which I've settled into. Interesting. Does that, does that make sense? It does, but 
In not not easy. Not easy to do. No, the head no. goes. The head goes. Oh my god. Yeah. No. It's crazy. it's. How can that be possible? How can I be as prosperous doing something that um, I love and you know also in in respect to uh, something that I circumstantially have done, which is working. Like, can you kind of explain what, 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 how, how is that possible that you can be as prosperous? Does it just mean, I guess it doesn't mean just in a financial way. No, it doesn't. No, but for, I think that's one of the problems in our cultures that we think, and, and, you know, as a family man, you have to think in terms of paying the bills and all that. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not making light of that, but of course we know that true prosperity is a lot more than just money. Yeah. Right. And if you're if your Dharma diamond is finely tuned, let's say, then you get to a place that I call the sweet spot of sustainability. I don't I don't have the slide to show you. I should have sent you the, the, the slide ahead of time. But you, you get to that spot where you're humming along and you're doing what you really love and you're being well compensated for it. Um, doing that kind of, making that kind of shift in your life takes effort. It's a tapasya. Yeah. And it takes careful examination. That's the purity principle. You have to really look at it and go, well, what doesn't belong? What does belong? You know, and, and you know, you could think of purity as uh, sat is our sat, chit Chitta is purity. It's our consciousness. So how aware are we of what's really going on for us? And respect is our ananda, satchit ananda. And it all comes together when, you know, when we apply ourselves uh, using, using our energy, uh, then we create our dharma and we create our sustainability. Mm -hmm. Um I'm not saying that you should give up your day job. I don't, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the Dharma diamond is a way to check in. And if you check in, you might find out, hey, I really do love my day job. But I haven't been seeing my day job in the way that I could be seeing my day job. Right. Perspective. It, 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 you get a different perspective and you might be able to say, oh, my God, I am in the job that I really love. And I'm going to have a different relationship with the job and I'm going to bring more vitality and more positivity to the job because I understand that this is really where I belong. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not about forcing change outside. It's about developing ourselves for transformation inside in our awareness and in our being. Right. So, so one would have to look closer to the truth principle to see is this job in this using this example the, the job mm -hmm. example that this is as this is closer to my truth but how does one find what one's own truth is well that's that's the journey right you know and and that journey begins with there's a number of things you can do to support that journey um you know honesty is essential when I mean, we even hear we even read in the Bhagavatam that you know the Shrimad Bhagavatam is for men who are thoroughly honest right if you're not thoroughly honest you're not going to be able to penetrate 
into the mysteries of the Bhagavatam. It, it'll just be another book from India, right? Right. So, so really spending time with yourself, looking at yourself, asking yourself questions, talking with loved ones or with friends, people you respect, who really know you, you know, um, taking time to step back from, you know, your beliefs, examining your beliefs and going, well, how, um, how much do my beliefs define me? Um, are my beliefs actually useful to me or are my beliefs holding me back? So, you know, in, in many cases, like, so for instance, you know, so one of the things that I run into for a lot of devotees is that um, everybody believes that they're very fallen. Not everybody, but you know what I'm saying? Many people struggle with the idea of self-esteem and being a devotee, yes. uh, especially if you're, I think if, especially if you're a Westerner, <laughs> I don't think the Indian devotees have that much of a problem with it. Perhaps mm -hmm. Westerners were doing a cultural transplantation. Oh yeah. yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? And it's yeah, like, totally. Wow, we're, you know, where do, how do I find myself here? Um, and so the, so the idea of um, confidence and looking at that and saying, well, is that belief really serving my spiritual life? Because, well, clearly the answer is it's not. Because there's a difference between humility and self-deprecation. Yeah. Right. So I can be humble, but I should also be positive, as our acharyas tell us. We have to be hopeful that, oh, yeah, this is for me, and that's I can do this, and I am a spiritual being working in this world. Right. And that's, what, that's what Prabhupada did for our gen, my generation of devotees. You know, we we you know, like Allen Ginsberg said, you know. The acid, the acid heads and the meth monsters showed up at 26-Second Avenue, right? You know, Prabhupada, Prabhupada pulled some of us naked out of trees, you know, right? And, and they all became great devotees. And why did they become great devotees? Prabhupada didn't say, oh, you were naked in a tree and therefore you should repent. <laughs> he said... Krishna loves you, and I'm here to show you how to love Krishna. And I want you to go off and start a temple in China or Africa. Or, and we were kids. How do I do? I've never done that, Prabhupada. No, Krishna will help you. I will help you. So the self belief that comes from real spiritual awakening, really checking in with yourself, is really empowering. Yeah. It's really empowering. And so like, if you look around you and you say, well, are the devotees feeling empowered? Do the devotees have the passion that they have a message for the world, which can save humanity at its darkest hours, Prabhupada said. And the answer is we do, but what beliefs are hindering us from living into that? Because that's just a momentary state of attention. It's a momentary state of awareness. I hope you're following what I'm saying. I don't know. No, totally. No, that's. I'm off on one, but. No, no, that's it's really making a lot of sense. 
in your experience with different people, different businesses and clients, have you seen someone use the Dharma diamond? Uh, like what did they look like initially? And then what does it look like when they're successfully uh, utilizing it? Or what does a successful person look like in that? In, or someone who's in that, you said that sweet spot, the sustainability spot. What does yeah. that look like? I, I mean, I have a number of practical examples, both uh, individuals uh, and some businesses. Um, I would say the characteristics are that you have a greater sense of clarity and purpose. Mm -hmm. you, you know, really, you have the confidence of knowing that this is who you are and this is what you're meant to do. I mean, that in itself is hugely empowering. Um, you find that your relationships thrive because you're paying attention to your relationships. You're not seeing relationships as a nuisance or as a difficulty, but you're seeing your relationships as an opportunity to express yourself, to even find yourself, because there's a mirror aspect between truth and respect. I see you and you see me. When I really see you, when I really listen to you, and I really know you, I can celebrate you. I can support you. I can learn from you and vice versa. Right. When I have really well-defined values, I can confront any obstacle I can confront any difficulty in life and I know that I can be safe and secure in living from those values. This is one of the things, you know, when we go back and talk about how this developed, this yeah. is one of, the, one of the things that I'm thinking the Dharma diamond is maybe not even for people who are alive now. I'm thinking it's for the next generation of people. Mm. Uh, in my book, I'm, I actually dedicate it to those who are yet unborn. Those who are yet born to be born. Because the changes that the world is going to go through are rather profound. And, and we're going through them now. Uh -huh. And, you know, how do you know how to navigate the complexity of the world as it is right now? How do you make sense of all this complexity? Well, you go back to the most basic principles, which we call universal principles. So these principles exist in traditions all over the world. If you yeah, let's talk about let's talk about that. Yeah. So so just one more example of of, of oh yeah sure yeah of because uh, you asked me the question about well what is it what does it look like mm -hmm. so the person's happy in being themselves they're happy in serving the relationships that they have. They have values that guide them in that process and they're passionate about what they do. Right. And they're, and they're efficient in what they do. They don't waste time. They don't waste energy. Their, their outputs are significantly better than what they could have previously imagined. Okay, so let's go back to, well, where does this come from? 
and and how did you know how, how did it evolve and you know I, at this point i want to thank all your listeners all your viewers for having the patience to stick with us this long in the journey so very interesting it's very know, interesting yeah so you know it was um I'm an astrologer and many astrologers will tell you that, you know, from different um, uh, yogas that happen every now and then that we know when good things are going to happen and when bad things are going to happen. And, you know, bad things really started to happen uh, with the eclipse in 1999, just prior to the destruction of the World Trade Center. Um, and, you know, they're continuing apace. Um, prior to that, I predicted the Gulf War um, and the loss of life in that. And, you know, any, any halfway decent astrologer can talk about these things. Yeah. In 2006, 2007, um, working alongside of some good friends, one of whom was a professor at uh, um, Den Haag University. Um, we were talking and we had a sense that things were really about to go, as they say here in England, pear-shaped, um, upside down. Right. You know, um, we had through colleagues and this other person I was working with, had consulted a number of top banks and began to ask them questions. His job was a question guy. He would just go in and ask questions to get people to think. And um, he asked them a lot of questions about how the financial system works and um, came away from the experience saying, well, it sounds to me like, you know, that we're really in trouble. And they said, well, yeah, probably. And he said, why do you guys keep showing up for work on Monday if you know that what you're doing is leading to that? And they said, well, we keep showing up to work on Monday because if we don't show up to work on Monday, then the house of cards really comes tumbling down. So by various means, we had some insight into the changes coming in 2008. And we got together with a bunch of us, some devotees, some sannyasis, some designers, some business people, um, some scholars. You've had Sundar Gopal Prabhu, Simon Haas on your program, I believe. Yeah, right. You know, his, yeah, his, right. Book, his book, The Book of Dharma, uh, comes out of the work that we did with the Cranmore Foundation at that time. Oh. Yeah. So... Um, he makes mention of that in his book. So there's a, there's a real kind of complementary complementariness between what I'm talking about and what you can read about in his book. Right. Um, and he was significant in, in helping us um, with our work. Um, and we began with asking three questions. Where is the world going in the next 50 to hundred years in areas like, science, economics, technology, sociology, and so on. Um, what exists, the second question was, what exists, um, does anything exist in the world's wisdom traditions that can help us 
face the challenges ahead and also capitalize on the opportunities that might come along. And then the third question was, if anything does exist, how do we tell that story to people in a way that they can understand it? And that became the foundational work of the Cranmore Foundation, which is the name has now been changed to the Living Wisdom Foundation here in the UK. Um, and we undertook, I think it was about 14 symposia studying the world's wisdom traditions and looking to identify universal uh, universal principles. And, you know, uni when I say universal principles, I mean the principles that apply to all people at all times in all circumstances uh, that define human, our common human experience and uh, uh, principles that actually help support the um, support and sustain our existence. So we felt that if we could identify what those principles were, then we could do something really clever and reformulate them as design principles. Right. Okay. So if you, if you were a Martian, let's say, and you came down from Martian Mars and you looked at the planet, you would, I mean, would you say, Oh, this is a well-designed planet. In some ways. Yeah. In some ways, but probably not in other ways. Yeah. yeah. Right. So in significant other ways, like you wouldn't necessarily say that, you know, there's a strong material development, but is there a strong spiritual internal development? Right. Mm -hmm. So do you know what, do you know what Moore's law is? No, no. Moore's law uh, was postulated by a guy named Gordon Moore, who uh, said that, Every 18 months to two years, semiconductor chips will double in strength and speed. And it's been like that for the last 50 years. It's just it's exponential growth. Oh, that has been happening, right? Right, sure. Yeah. But ask yourself the question, has that been happening in human consciousness? No, it's been gone. It's, it's, it's been, gone. been going down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so yeah. there's something wrong with the system. Mm. The system's designed for an ad, a, a, a adverse outcome. Now, whether I'm not saying that it's intentionally designed that way. I know there are some people out there who would say that it is, and I'm not going to argue with that. I don't. I don't care about the causal reason. I'm. I'm, I'm just looking at the effect. Yeah. Right. So our work was very much focused on the idea that if we could identify these universal principles, we could reformulate them into design principles that could help create a better society, that could help create better individuals, better quality of life, better organizations, better businesses, better relation with the planet, with the environment, with the birds and the animals and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where the Dharma diamond developed from. We looked at all the world's wisdom traditions and we found that every tradition deals with the truth. Every tradition deals with respect. Love thy neighbor as thyself. 
do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Every tradition talks about purity and become becoming better and better, becoming more refined in our being. And every principle tells us of the need to sacrifice. Uh, sorry, every tradition tells us of the need to um, to sacrifice for a higher purpose in life. Yeah. And what we realized was that Dharma as a concept encapsulates all these four principles very neatly, very elegantly in a model that it's sort of there in other traditions, but not quite as succinct and, and, and not quite as um, um, direct, I think is probably the right word I'm looking for. I feel that uh, could this could this be applied to, like for example, our Hare Krishna movement of, of right now, you know, seeing where you know seeing where we are in terms of these four principles, and seeing where what's align what's aligning more to what it was meant to be. Have you ever done anything like that? I've done that in small groups, um, yeah. but actually, that one of the re, one of my personal motivations in wanting to come talk to you on 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 your podcast was to just hand it to people and say, "Go away and do, go away and play with this." Yeah, right. Go yeah. go go try this out. Right. Experiment with it. Um, have the curiosity to explore how this would work. If you want some help, contact me. But I, you know, the four principles are self-evident universal principles. It's, you know, it's like gravity. You know, you don't, you know, David Hume said if you can get a bunch of guys in a room and talk about gravity, but everybody will leave the room by the door and not by the window. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, like if you look at these four principles. And we did this in our in our in our symposia. We 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 said, does a does a broom have dharma? And a broom. A broom. Yeah. It's, it's an inanimate object. Yeah. And uh, you know, some of the sannyasis in the room said, no, 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 brooms don't have dharma. But then you know, the guy that I was working with, the professor, who's you know, rest in peace, he's he's passed on. Um, and we miss him greatly. Um, uh, he said, no, 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 a broom has a dharma. A broom has its own truth. Well, what kind of broom is it? Is it, is it a clothes broom? Is it a broom for the floor? Is it a broom for the curtains? You know, right? right. And, and, and the respect principle in a broom is, well, is it easy to use? You know, is it friendly for me to hold? Wow. Right. And then you could and then you could say, well, what's the purity principle of the broom is that, you know, um, is it is it designed in such a way that it performs the best function of a broom? It doesn't have any extraneous anything on it. It's just the most simple broom, but it's really right. good, right? right? It's effective. And, you, and you've used these brooms, I think, right? Yeah. And then you say, okay, and what's what's the tapasya is the craftsmanship. Mm. Right? You know, how well was it made? Is it made with sloppy materials or was it, you know, it's slapdash? 
did you take a bunch of sticks together and just tie it up with a string and you put a, a stick in it and that's a broom? Yeah, that's a broom, but there might be better brooms. So what you find is that um, everything in existence is defined by these four principles. You are the microphone, the really nice microphone that you have there. You know, that everything is defined by these four principles. You can't find anything in existence. And we read this in the Jiva Dharma, you know, that, you know, everything has its intrinsic dharmic nature. Right. So if you know what these principles are, then our idea was and still is that you could design for better outcomes. So our belief were pessimistic, as Prabhupada said, we see with one bad eye and with one good eye. The bad eye says, well, there's a lot of big change coming and oh my God, what is it gonna be like? And the good eye says, well, we have an ability to respond because we're spiritual beings having a material experience. If we really live that in our consciousness, if we really believe that we're empowered by our guru, what can stop us? This was what Prabhupada gave us. You know, I think this is what we should be doing as an older generation for the younger generation of the devotees and saying, you know, here's a tool like the Dharma diamond, go use it, you know, believe in yourself, believe in Krishna, believe in guru, and you can do this. So can the Dharma diamond be useful in assessing where we are at in the movement? I think absolutely. And I think if you go around and apply it, you'll find that those pockets of excellence that exist out there in the devotee world, they're humming along because these four principles are really strong. Right. And yeah. where one, and where one of them is weak, guess what? They tend to weaken the others. Mm. Right. So if your purity is weak, if your values and your standards are weak, you're going to have to work harder. If your values are really high, if your criteria is really well defined, it's going to take less energy to get things done. Right. Right. So they either energize each other or they enervate each other. They take energy away from each other when one or more are weak. And if you look at any organization, we've done it with, you know, you have to be thoughtful and you have to be uh, observant, but you'll be able to see these things in operation. And I even have clients now that use the Dharma Diamond and they see they they say they see it everywhere. Wow. They they see it in action everywhere. Right. I I like that point you made about being gentle with it because my tendency is like, oh, something's like really off. So I have to like make some huge change so I can like recalibrate and make it. Nah. Harmonious. Actually, most of the change that we have to make, interestingly enough, is in our state of awareness. Right. It's in our consciousness. And, you know, hence the genius of Prabhupada calling it the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. 
right? It's all in our state of awareness. Right. So, you know, if you want, uh, my, my stepson is, uh, has been a professional uh, cyclist uh, here in the UK. Um, professional cycling teams don't look for, uh, they look for betterment in increments of tenths of a percent. So if you can change 1% of your awareness, that is significant enough to actually change the whole structure of your existence. That might be just eliminating one negative belief. Right? right? You know, and, and say, oh, I, actually, that one thing I don't need. And that just changes the trajectory of the whole thing. Just, it, you know, and, and it's really commonly understood now that betterment in any kind of organization, especially sportsmen, uh, know this very well. Um, don't think that you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. You're already, if you really look at your life in a, in a, in a careful way, you're probably going to find out that there's a lot more that's positive about it than is negative about it. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's just the little tweaks and that's the purity principle. What, what little tweak can I make so that I can have really big, bigger results? So yeah. it's a bit of an art. Super interesting. Wow. This is uh so this was all kind of, it all spawned from this meeting of, of people, yeah. investors, devotees that you, yeah. How to bring people better outcomes, not just, and, and the thing that interests, interests me about this is it's not, it's like can be applied in such a, in so many different ways, it's not just like an individual thing. It's not just the business thing. It's like every, it's like, and everywhere. Everything, everything, everything that exists yeah. has the four principles of Dharma. If it didn't have it, it wouldn't exist. Yeah. And, you know, and so all we really need to do is become aware of the quality of these principles. Are they operating well in any situation? Mm -hmm. And when they're not, you can say, hey, that one percent tweak that I need to make, if I make it in where I'm weak in one of these principles, everything else starts. There's there's a there's a compound effect, compound positive effect that immediately you're going to get to a better place. And it, it does work. Did you, being someone who is representing it, did you apply it in your own life and see like the difference? I, I have to say that, you know, I remember I was going to the gym um, and I was waiting for my trainer to call me in to make me suffer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and it just came to me and I have the notebook. I even have the pictures of, of the sketch and the notebook. And I just, it was like an epiphany. And I just saw the whole model, like, you know, as it, uh, uh, as it is. And um, I've never been able to get away from it. I know, you know, now, you know, I'm human. So, I'm not saying I'm perfect. I, I don't hold myself out as a guru or, sure, sure. 
you know, anything like that. I mean, I'm just one of you, <laughs> you know, I'm on my journey too, yeah. but I found that when I'm really attentive to it, um, then it really helps when I neglect it. I do so at my own peril. Yeah. If you're well, not like, for instance, one, well, just a quick example. If you're not true to yourself, Shakespeare says to thine own self be true. Right. So if you're not honest with yourself and you're living a life that's somewhat not authentic, it's going to impact on all your relationships. Right. Sorry. No, no, no. Some someone could say that. Okay, I am following Krishna consciousness principles, and this is that's the highest thing. And whatever incongruencies I have in my life will ultimately be fixed in itself by itself from the practices of sadhana and bhakti, etc. What would you say to that? Which it has its truths, of course, but it seems that um, to be more honest and to have that certain perspective, this is like a very needed thing, even for a person who might say, hey, you know, I'm sticking to, you know, what I heard of, you know, for reg 16, uh, you know, 16 rounds. And that's how that's what my life is going to be. Well, first of all, the four regulated principles are regulated, are pro prohibited principles that stop you from destroying these four principles of Dharma. Right. Right? Yeah. So, you know, when I'm gambling, when I'm speculating, I'm destroying truth. When I'm eating, when I'm eating meat, you know, let's say, you know, um, I'm destroying respect. You know, when I'm having indiscriminate connection, sexual connection, Right. I have there's no purity there. Right. Uh, when I'm. When I'm drunk. There's no the what happens when you're intoxicated. Right. You know, you don't you don't get intoxicated and go to work. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, you come home from work and have a glass of wine because you want to relax. Right. So, you know, OK, to answer your question. Um, I firmly believe that the holy name of Krishna, when it's chanted properly, is the answer to all of our woes and problems. It's the pathway to all of our opportunities. You know, you know, it's the only way. It's the only way. It's the only way. Right. I'm a firm believer in that. And yet I also find in living life, as long as I've lived it, that there is a complexity to life that requires our awareness. Walking across the street at the right time when the light is whatever color that's supposed to be in, ensures that I'm going to get to the other side of the street. Eating the right kind of food is going to ensure that I'm either healthy or I'm not healthy. Um, conducting my relationships in a particular way are going to help me have better quality relationships. I'm, you know, if, if anything, I would say 
if there was one principle that we could really do with in the movement would be really looking at the respect principle. We pay, we pay pranams to each other, but is there a genuine respect there? You know, that's, and I can't speak for everybody, but that's something I always ask myself, you know, am I really, when I'm presenting myself to the deity, am I really there for the deity? If I'm honest, I'll say probably not, not fully, because I'm not fully surrendered, but I know that I'm aware that to the extent that I'm not surrendered, I'm holding myself back. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I would say that Krishna consciousness is the answer to everything. And for the purest practitioners out there who don't want to um, bother themselves with other modes of thinking, um, I totally respect that and support that. I don't, I think that the devotee world could benefit a lot from this. Um, because not everyone's purely practicing. Because not everybody's purely practicing. But I also, again, we've designed this more for um, for new people almost. Yes. yes. You know, like, so, so like when you, when you meet somebody on the street and you, go up and ask them, you know, do a straw poll, go out on the street and today and say, you know, Hare Krishna's, what does that mean to you? What, what, what do they stand for? Right. Um, the truth of the matter is if they really understood our philosophy, they would at least say people who stand for the truth, people who are respectful in their dealings, people who are aimed at a continual process of personal refinement and betterment for themselves and others, and people who are passionate and vital about their life, bringing joy and happiness to the world. You're going to get that. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you will. <laughs> Some cases Probably you will. Probably not. But <laughs> I don't know. I, the, again, again, it's, you know, the Dharma diamond is not the answer. Yes. The answer is for us to find within ourselves with the guidance of our gurus. But it's a way of checking in. It's a compass. It's a guidepost. The tool, yeah. It's a tool. I love that. Yeah. Well, um, Budarbu, it's been really fascinating speaking with you. Um, and I'm really interested to, you know, do the exercise and get to know more about the Dharma diamond, each aspect and how it relates to anything I'm trying to analyze or, you know, look at uh, in the context and looking at in the way of the Dharma diamond. So how would uh, you said there's a book or can you tell us a little bit about resources? Uh, well, you know, I mean, a great book to, to begin with, of course, would be uh, Sundar Gopal, Simon Haas's book, The, the Book of Dharma. Right. It's a great it's a great introduction to the overall concept. And I believe um, at the last printing, the first printing anyway that he made, uh, he does reference this work and, and the model itself. Sure. He slightly presents it in a little bit different way, but he he uses our graphics to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you very much, uh, Sundar Gopal Prabhu, for that. So that's a good place to start. Um, yeah. I'm in the process of writing a book. It seems to be taking forever. 
Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going out there and wanting to talk more and meet more with people and have conversations with people and engage in dialogue with people in real life situations that relate to problems that they're having. So we're putting together a series of workshops that would be both online and in person. Um, so I'm working with a couple of other people on that. Um, and I would say that, you know, if people want, they can just contact me and, you know, inquire more and, and uh, what I, whatever I have, however I can help, definitely happy to help. Sure, sure. Let me post up here on the screen um, your... So this is the uh, www.cranmorefoundation.org. That's C-R-A-N-M-O-R-E foundation.org for all our audio listeners. And this is the foundation. Uh, this is your foundation? This is our foundation. Um, the foundation website um, points in the direction of the type of work we're doing. Uh, if you want to uh, really learn a little bit more about the model of the Dharma Diamond, you would go to my other website, sure. which is michaelgeary.co.uk. Right. Michael Geary, G-E-A-R-Y. Yeah. .co.uk. That's, uh, I, I assume you can get in, someone can get in contact with you through that website. Yeah, yeah they can get in contact with me. Um, if you want to contact me directly by email, it's Michael. Uh, at michaelgeary.co.uk. Uh, yeah, let me just yeah. post that also. Great. That's really awesome. And uh, yeah, michael at michaelgeary.co.uk if you want to get yeah. in touch with Prabhu directly um, about Thank this. You. But uh, I'd love to bring you on, Prabhu, again to talk more, to me unpack more about, uh, about Dharma Diamond if you have any other uh, topics. It's been really fascinating speaking with you. I love the depth and I love that this is, you know, kind of the takeaway for me has been, it's not about um, changing something drastic. It's about changing something about your awareness and about your perspective. And that can make a large change in someone's life. Uh, and, and I think, it, would you say that's a good takeaway? I would say that that's the essence of it. Um, it, it's, it's the quality of our consciousness, um, you know, and, uh, we, we did an exercise, uh, in, in the foundation. So we asked everybody, um, what is the truth of different things? So we asked them the question of, well, what is the truth of birth? Um, what's the truth of death? What's the truth of loss? You know, if I lose a limb, what is the truth of that? And what can I learn from that? So I'm giving that example to say that these are things that we will all encounter in life, one in one form or another. Yeah. And the question really becomes, what is our adequate response to these things? how do we position our consciousness in such a way that we have the strength and we have the understanding to really, from a spiritual perspective, really walk our talk and be the devotees that we really want to be. Yeah. Yeah. So it, I, yeah, it, it's a, it's a little bit long winded way of saying, yeah, I think it's about, it's about outlook. It's about what we attend to. 
And it's also lastly about um, optimism. Um, I, you know, I, I especially want people to feel that, I, I would love everybody to feel that thing that we felt with Prabhupada, that an unbelievable self-belief and energy that we had, that we could go out. We had the idea we were gonna change the world. Yeah, you did. Well, in a way, we did, but yeah. you know, Prabhupada did, not us. And 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 I think I think for the younger generation, that's really what I'm aiming at. You know, young people, not exclusively, of course, but I feel that young people in this generation are probably one of the most challenged generations that there ever has been. Hmm. And um, how do we help you guys? Yeah. I think it's a big Thank deal. You so much. Well, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking. Yeah, it's been really fun. Thank you so much. Uh, Prabhu, please stay on. I'm going to just turn off the uh, recording. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Uh, please get in touch with Budar Prabhu if you'd like uh, with the emails that email and website um, that I uh, posted previously. Thank you, everyone. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna.